first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Yeshua loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. And both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. New life. Fresh breeze in our sails. Have you ever thought about what it would feel like 
to experience the resurrection, to feel what these people were feeling, to go through the, the range of emotions that they must have gone through. What do you think is the most important image that we can take away today from these stories, from, from everything that we've been hearing, from trying to put yourself into the place of these first followers, to even just relate it to your own life and what's going on right now, everything that you're facing as a family, everything that we're facing as a nation, as a globe. As we go through these changes and we look at this story and we look at this reality that Yeshua lives, what can we take away? What is the most important thing we can understand for this new life, for this fresh breeze? You see, typically we focus on the supernatural. We focus on the miracle itself. We focus on God's power, which is awesome, of course, in the best sense of that word, awe-inspiring. But think about it. The Gospels focus someplace else. The Gospels focus on the effect of the resurrection and not really the resurrection itself. The story in the Gospels picks up after the resurrection has already occurred, has already happened. It doesn't give us any details about that amazing event itself, but follows a point of view of the followers, their reactions, what they went through grappling with this reality in their lives. The story of the Gospels tells us where to look, tells us what's most important by focusing there, not by telling us where to look, but by showing us where to look, not at the miracle, but how the miracle affects the lives of those who experience it, how we will experience it, how they experience it. In other words, the question really to ask is not whether you believe, it's what difference does it make that you believe? It's fascinating to me. It's always been fascinating how no one recognizes the risen Jesus. You notice that? Every single story that we're going to look at this morning, the first time they see Jesus, they don't recognize him. You think that's important? If it keeps recurring over and over in the stories, of course it's important. The Gospels are short. There's not many words there. These Gospel writers were not writing by the inch. Every single detail is there because it's important, because it needs to be there, because it is a cornerstone of something that we need to pay attention to. It's showing something, something important. Well, what is that? Why didn't they recognize Jesus? Did he look different? Did he have some sort of cloaking device? <laughs> Was there another miracle here? But you see, if it was another miracle, then it wouldn't teach us anything. That's just God's power exerting itself. But what is it that we're supposed to learn from this? Now, in Luke's version of the story, the women come at dawn to the tomb. Now, why would they come at dawn to the tomb? Well, they came at dawn because the crucifixion and Jesus' death occurred so close to sundown at the beginning of the, past, of the Shabbat, of the Sabbath, that they had no time to put him in, to, to anoint him before they put him into the tomb. They had to get him in the tomb by sundown because that was part of the law, and they had to have him anointed. And so what they were going to do, their solution was get him into the tomb, seal it up, and then as soon as Shabbat was over, 
and sa- at Saturday night at sundown, they would run to the market, get the spices, and then first light Sunday morning, they come. And they're worried about whether they can open the stone. But they don't have to worry about that. But they're confused. The tomb is open. The body is missing. What the heck are they going to do now? What happened? And there are two men there. And they look at these women and they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? That's a question. Why did they seek the living among the dead? Well, they watched him die two days before. They buried him in a graveyard among the dead. And they expected him to stay put. That's kind of a reasonable expectation, right? They expected him to still be exactly where they left him because everything in human experience and everything in their own life experience had told them that that's exactly where he would be. I know a lot of you have heard this story before, but I never get tired of telling it, and it's perfect. And for some of you, maybe it's still a new story. Mary and I had been married about four months, and, uh, but we had been together for over three years. And so we were very familiar with each other. We knew each other really well. And so one day I had to go to Target in the middle of the day to get something. And so I went to the store. And, of course, I don't know Target very well. So I'm looking down every aisle trying to find what I'm going for. And I look down this one aisle. And here comes this woman toward me pushing a cart. And she is so beautiful that I have to do this double take, you know. And I'm just watching her walk to me. And it was literally about four beats before I recognized that it was my wife. Marion inexplicably was in Target, you know. And you can't get in trouble for checking out your own wife. I got to bring her home. What the heck? Here's the thing. Why didn't I recognize her? I didn't recognize her because I didn't expect her to be there. There was no reason. It wasn't until several days later that I realized what a gift I'd been given. That I was able to see my wife as if for the first time. You can't manufacture that. It just happens, and we can see again with fresh eyes, with fresh breeze in our sails. But I want you to imagine something now. What if she had died? What if I had buried her, and then I see her at Target? That would have been a very different experience. How long would it have taken me to accept that that was really my wife in the middle of Target? And if you think about it that way, how long did it take for Jesus' followers to accept that he was alive when everything in their experience, everything in them as human beings was saying that this was not possible? And what possibly could have broken them through to the understanding that this person standing in front of them really was their master? Well, Mary in John 20 Obviously, she expected Jesus where she left him. In John's version, she goes alone to the tomb, and she's all business. She's on a mission, right? She had gone and bought those spices the night before. She was preparing them all night long, and she was just waiting for the first crack of dawn. In fact, she left before the crack of dawn to get there. And she's like one of these cartoon characters, if you think about it. You know those cartoon characters? They run, they run, they run, and they run off the cliff, and they still go out into space before they finally realize there's nothing, no ground underneath them, and it's not until they look down that they start to fall. She was kind of like that. She was on this mission, and it was just driving her forward. She was speed-talking, you know, and just, uh, and then finally, it's Miriam, Miriam, shut up, Miriam. And something about the tone of the voice, something about that familiar 
way that he said her name broke her through. It breaks the spell and it brings her back. And she realizes who this is that she's talking to. It took that intimate detail, just the way he said her name, as he had said it a thousand times before, that brings her back. In Luke 24, there are friends of Jesus that are on their way to a little village called Emmaus. And they meet Jesus on the road, and of course they have no idea that it's Jesus. And they spend hours traveling and walking with him and discussing the scriptures. And they're amazed that this man has no idea what just went on in Jerusalem. And so they're telling him about the master, and they're telling him everything that they know about him. And finally, when they're getting to their destination, and it's on toward evening, they beg him to come and stay with them and have dinner and stay over the night. And he agrees, and he goes. And they sit down at, at their meal. Actually, they don't sit down. They lay down at their meal. And Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it. He blesses it and he passes it out to them. And in that action, in that familiar gesture that they had seen him do a thousand times as well, suddenly it breaks the spell. Their eyes are opened and they realize who it is that is with them. In the story that we just heard from John 21, they'd gone fishing They'd finally gotten back to the Galilee, and they all decided to go fishing. But you know, it's more than just going fishing the way that we would go fishing. They were fishermen. This was their livelihood. The sense of the passage is that they were going back to their old way of life. They were going back to familiar routines. And in those routines and doing the things that they do, there's someone on the beach, and he yells to them with with this irritating question. Have you caught anything? Well, obviously they haven't caught anything. And then there's this completely irrational command. Well, if you throw your nets over the other side of the boat, you'll find some. Sometimes it takes that break in rationality. So many times we've talked about the fact that when Jesus teaches, he doesn't answer a direct question. He doesn't allow the questioner to stay on the same linear path because that path is the problem. That path is what needs to be broken. And this irrational command, this crazy idea, and when they see the fish, it breaks the spell. They realize. And Peter is the first one to jump in the water because he was always doing stuff like that. But that crazy change that flips them out into another another direction is what brings them into the reality that they are seeing their risen Lord. And when they get to him, what's he doing? He's just cooking breakfast. Got some fish over the fire. Nothing spectacular. Something they had seen him do hundreds of times. Each time, in each one of these stories, it's the smallest, most intimate gesture that breaks the spell. Not something big. Not something spectacular. You know, we're always looking for the spectacular thing. The thing that's going to match the sense of God's awesome power that we have tucked away in our heads. But it's the little things. I mean, think about it. When you uh, open a online account, what do they want to do? They want to ask you security questions, right? It's going to be, what was your first pet's name? What was your favorite pet's name? What street did you live on when you were a kid? Intimate details that nobody else would know. It's not going to show up on a resume. It's not a big deal. Nobody cares about that stuff, except the security people. 
because they know only you would know those things. Only you and the person who was closest to you, the person who you were intimate with, would know the answers to questions like that. That's why it proves your identity, proves who you are. We really only know someone when we experience those most intimate details. Jesus' friends had to re-experience intimacy with him in this risen state to prove his identity to themselves. As human beings, there's really no other way about this. Even if their heads would tell them that this is Jesus, their hearts would not let them live that reality until they re-experienced the intimacy. And it's going to be exactly the same with us. This is this resurrection This Easter, it's not about believing theological truths. It's not about believing in the resurrection as a theological reality out there. It's about letting these truths affect the most intimate experiences of our lives. I hope you can see that difference. We can stand at arm's length and say that we believe something, but it doesn't touch us. It doesn't really take us anywhere until it becomes intimate, until it becomes personal, until it starts to affect every bit of our lives. Why do we seek the living among the dead? You know, that's a great line. Why do you seek the living among the dead? It's one of those lines you wish you had written, like the best lines in a movie. You know, you had me at hello. Here's looking at you, kid. (laughs) We'll always have Paris. Go ahead, make my day. These great lines, this is one of them. It says so much. It encapsulates so much. You know, I used to think that if I could walk with Jesus, that I never would have missed him. I knew that if I had been able to have the privilege of walking the way these first followers did, there was no way that I was going to miss him. Really. Truth of the matter is, I spent a decade looking for Jesus. I looked for him in church. I looked for him in religion. I looked for him in theology. I looked for him in the Bible. I looked for him every place that I expected him to be. I looked where I expected him to be, and he wasn't there. He wasn't in my ideas. He wasn't in my stated beliefs. He wasn't in my head. See, the truth is, the moment that we settle on a belief, the moment we settle on an idea about God, God is no longer there. Why would that be true? Why would I say something like that? Because life is defined by motion. Spirit is defined by motion. The word for spirit in Hebrew means breath, wind, spirit, all at the same time. Everything there defined by motion has to be moving. If breath isn't moving, you're dead. If wind isn't moving, it's just air. And if spirit is moving, is not moving, it's not spirit. This truth that all living things move, that all living things are defined by motion. If there's no motion, there's no life. Set beliefs, as soon as they become static in our mind, become motionless, and they're dead. They're no longer among the living. And Jesus is not there. If spirit and Jesus is always in moving, then our beliefs need to be always in motion and moving with him, ready to take the next gust of wind into our sails, ready to experience the next thing that is offered to us. Set beliefs are graveyards in our spirit. 
Jesus is not there. This is what the scriptures are trying to get across to us. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Why do you allow your beliefs to calcify? Why do you allow the walls to go up around your fortress that keep you in a place where the Spirit blows past and through? Jesus is always among the living. The Gospels are telling us to look for Jesus, look for the resurrection in the heart of everyday life. Our set beliefs limit our ability to see. We're only going to see what we expect to see, which is why the first followers of Jesus didn't recognize him at first. They didn't expect it. It wasn't part of their set belief system. Jesus is always where we least expect. And as soon as we decide where he's supposed to be, we're going to miss him. We want to look for Jesus in the clouds, returning in the clouds in some spectacular way. And you know what he's doing? He's cooking breakfast. In every person and every task, if we can't find Jesus there, we're not going to find him at all. And if we can start to see Jesus in everything that we do, in every moment, no matter how seemingly insignificant, that changes everything about the way we're going to approach life, about the way that we're going to experience new life and fresh breeze in our sails. What is the most important thing that you can take away from these stories, from this resurrection story, from the reality that Jesus lives today? I think it's that if you want to see the risen Lord in your life, then you need to be affected by the risen Lord in your life. Look in the thickest part of your life. Look in the smallest and most intimate details. If you can't find Jesus there, you're not going to find him anywhere. When you hear your name called, when you see a familiar gesture that just brings you back into the connection with these people in your life, Jesus is there in that connection. When you're shocked by a radically new idea or concept or by a new invitation to do something that you've never done before, no matter how irrational it may be. Jesus is there. In the way that we process, in the way that we can be open to something new and not set and not closed. If we can release the grip that we have on our set ideas and patterns and beliefs, then we're going to stop seeking for Jesus among the dead. we got to jump in the water like Peter, be willing to be that bold and that brash and start swimming for shore to find Jesus cooking breakfast, doing something that is at once so familiar and so intimate and yet opens us up to so much. And just as the breaking of bread for those friends of Jesus on the road to Emmaus just as that breaking of bread opened them up to see who he was, it's time for us to break bread here as well. It's time for us to reimagine communion, not as, again, a memory from 2,000 years ago, but as this intimate gesture that opens us up to this new reality that opens our eyes to be able to see who Jesus really is, to open our eyes to see that Jesus is still alive, not only then, but right now.
absolutely right now to take into ourselves all that he is and find a new reality for our own lives. That's what this communion is all about. And unfortunately, we can't all be here together. I have to tell you, this is a very strange Easter for me, looking around at an empty room. I so miss you all and wish you were here so that we could be partaking in communion together. But in your own homes, where you are right now and where we are right now, get your communion elements ready. We're going to do a song. And as we do the song, see if you can just remain in a spiritual place where you're aware. You're aware of Jesus' presence. You're aware of the presence of everyone in your home. But you're also aware of everyone's presence who is being connected by these invisible electronic waves. We're all here. We're all doing this together at the same time. And there's power in that. Hold on to your elements. And we'll take communion all together at the end. And on that last night with his friends, Jesus took bread. He broke the bread and he passed it out and he said, take this, all of you, and eat. For this is my body, which will be broken for you. Take this and eat. And when you do, remember me. Near the end of supper, he took the cup and he held it up. And he said, take this, all of you, and drink. For this is the cup of my blood, the blood of a new and everlasting covenant, blood that will be shed for you, and for everyone, for you and for everyone, for the remission of sin, for the realization that you are still one with your Father in heaven as much as you want to be. Take this and drink, and when you do, remember me, but not with your thoughts and not with your, your mind, not even with your words. Remember me with every moment, every embrace, every face, every intimate gesture. Take this and drink and remember that I am intimately alive and in your life right here and right now. It has been 50 days now since the morning Mary burst into that rented room and turned everyone's world upside down, or better, right side up. All Yeshua's closest friends and followers have been waiting in the city at their master's instruction, and they don't know why. They know their master lives, but they don't seem to know what that means for them, for the rest of their lives. But they have been counting the days since that first Sunday and must sense something is coming that will break the deadlock. And here, 2,000 years later, we are all together again in a rented room impossible for those first followers to have ever imagined. 
all in our separate rooms, connected by invisible threads of energy that project light and sound to create a rented room as big as the furthest of us is from the closest. But some things never change for as long as we are human. This room and all the rooms like it have seen the best and the worst we have to offer as followers of Yeshua and children of God. Joy and depression, exuberance and fear. And though we have all now gotten used to the idea that Yeshua lives, that he rose again and is now returned to his Father and our Father, we may still sense that there is a peace missing, something that holds us back and keeps us from expressing and fully living everything the Master works so hard to teach us. We gather expectantly. Something is coming. We all feel it. We don't know what to expect, but that doesn't matter anymore. We've at least learned to expect the unexpected. Yeshua promised us a helper who would come and stand at our sides forever. And as an impossible wind inside this room picks up, shaking the house to its foundations, we begin to understand what he meant. That it is the spirit of truth that really makes us free. That even when we think we have arrived at our final destination, God is already there to remind us, see, I am making all things new. If only we will begin to look for truth among the living and never the dead. Father, this is our prayer this morning, this Easter morning, this kind of strange Easter morning, physically separated, but spiritually connected. Our prayer is that we would more and more let go of looking for Jesus in the spectacular things and find him right here and right now. Let the reality of his resurrection infuse us, infuse our choices, literally put that fresh wind into our sails that blows us through even the most difficult circumstances of our lives. Father, we believe that you live. We believe that you are here and now living and active. But sometimes we don't live that way. We want to live as if that is true. We want our head and our hearts, our beliefs and our actions to all be one, in one accord. We pray for that deeper infilling of spirit into our lives that will take us someplace we've never been before. Allow us to experience and begin to exercise that kind of power in our lives as well the confidence, the conviction, the blessed assurance that you are here in everything as well. This Easter is all of that for us, Father. Give us the strength, give us the desire, give us the tenacity to keep living our lives as if all this is true until we finally know that it is true. Thank you, Father, for everything. Thank you for this morning. And thank you for this ability to still be together in the midst of all that we're going through. And we do pray for our world, our nation, our families, that through this outbreak, we will remain true, 
faithful to what we say we believe in you, but we will emerge on the other side of this stronger than ever with a knowing that we have gone through this valley of the shadow of death to whatever extent that we have and know that you are always with us. That's new life as well. Father, thank you.